Dun, 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 dun. I have published a new book. It's called The View from the Deck, Thoughts on Values, Vision, and Gratitude. If you like morning motivation, you're going to love this book. You can find it on Kindle and in paperback form on Amazon, and the audiobook is coming soon. So check out The View from the Deck, Thoughts on Values, Vision, and Gratitude on Amazon now. Over the last few days, memories from a much younger Michael have been popping into my head from my high school years. Now, I was a coach back when I was 15. I didn't know what a coach was at the time, but I knew what needed to be done, and so I did it. I had friends, mostly female friends, who were having challenges, were having troubles. And when you're young, everything seems normal and everything seems possible, so it seemed perfectly reasonable that if they needed someone to talk to, I'd talk to them, and it seemed perfectly normal that as I'm talking to them, I would get an understanding of not just what they were saying, but where it was coming from, and what the blocks were that were holding them in place, and what was causing it, and what was behind it, and what the other side of the story was. And I just intuitively understood that. I figured everyone did. Apparently they don't. This intuition and empathy are relatively unique gifts, not unique, but limited, and gifts that I have. I didn't realize that at the time, but I did know that I could help them, and I enjoyed doing it. Now, some some of it I enjoyed doing for the altruistic reason that I enjoyed helping people, and I also enjoyed doing it because I was a 15, 16, 17-year-old boy, and I enjoyed the attention of young women, girls, teenagers, teenage girls. I certainly enjoyed their attention. I got quite a bit of it when I gave them my attention and helped them work through their challenges. Now, many of these challenges were caused by bad parenting. The parents, of course, thought they were good parents. They were protecting their daughters, and they were trying to keep them safe from the dangers of the world, and they were doing so by being authoritarian and overprotective. And I can tell you with absolute confidence and from experience that if you want your child to do something, definitely prevent them from doing it. Create a hard and fast rule that doesn't make sense about why they can't, and they definitely will. I've never explored the extents of this, but I feel like if you ban your child from school, they'll find a way to get straight A's. You know, if, if you tell your kids, you can't go to that party, hang out with those friends because there might be drugs there, your kids will find a way to do drugs. On the other hand, if you let them do drugs, like my mother did, they'll never be interested. So I've always wondered if you ban a kid from school, will they learn? In fact, we see examples of that sometimes. We hear about children in countries where school is difficult or girls are not allowed to learn or um, slaves during the slave era in the United States who would secretly learn because they weren't allowed to and so they'd learn to read. And one wonders if school is just too easy and accessible and that's why kids aren't engaged in it. But that's neither here nor there. Many of these, these girls suffered all kinds of difficulty, mental health challenges, because of all kinds of reasons, including the fact that they had authoritarian, overbearing parents who didn't, uh, didn't respect them or listen to them and wanted to keep them in their place. Plus, of course, all the conflicting, competing forces upon them growing up in the 90s. I imagine it's just as bad today, but different. But 
at that point, there was very much the conflict between you need to be a good girl and live the Barbie lifestyle and, uh, you know, get married and take care of kids and all that. But also get good grades so you can get a good job. But also be pretty and attractive. But also not be too slutty. But also, but also, but also. And this led to some serious mental health crises. It was not uncommon for me to encounter someone, a friend in a mental health crisis, as we now call it, considering suicide, strongly considering it. I very rarely dealt with someone who was actually at the moment of pills in their hand, knife in their hand, ready to do something, but I would, on a fairly regular basis, talk to friends who were considering suicide. And I would talk them down. Now, some adults in my life told me that if you ever have someone who's talking about suicide, you need to call the authorities, bring in an adult, you know, call the police, call, call a guidance counselor, because they'll know what to do. But I couldn't do that. And I couldn't do that because many of these girls had had experiences with the system previously, and the system had done far more harm than good. And if you look at the system and the way it was structured then, I don't know what it's like now, but if you look at how it was structured then, you could certainly understand why it would do more harm than good. First off, the assumption was almost that being a teenage girl was a pathology in itself. That, yo, teenage girl, of course you're crazy. You're a teenage girl, they're all crazy. It's not a question of if you're crazy. It's a question of which and how many medications we need to give you to get you under control. Because there's something wrong with you. You're a teenage girl, after all. Of course there's something wrong with you. And then their acute response was to pull you out of your comfort zone, take you out of your house, take you away from your friends, away from any coping mechanisms you might have, and put you in an institutional setting, surrounded by people who were really, really crazy. You know, we're talking schizophrenia and bipolar and all these conditions where the people couldn't roam the streets. Put you hanging out with them, supported by, quote-unquote supported by, a team of professionals who are exhausted and overworked and burned out, whose first recourse is to put pills in you to calm you down and get you under control. And then, of course, your parents, who are already overbearing, overprotective, and authoritarian, who already believe that you can't manage your own affairs, now have more justification because there's something wrong with you. You have a diagnosis and a medication and a prescription. Of course, we need to protect you because you can't take care of yourself. And we need to protect you from those quote-unquote friends of yours. And we need to keep you away from all these things that are harming you because when we see you listening to that music, that's correlated with when you start doing the things we don't want you to do. And when you see those friends, that's correlated to you doing the things we don't want you to do. So we need to keep you away from that music or those books or that media and those friends. Not realizing correlation actually ran the other direction. That when you had the challenge, when you were in difficulty, you reached out to your friends or listened to that music that you found comforting or read that book or that graphic novel that comforted you. It's like saying, every time we hear those sirens and see those red lights, there's another fire. We need to stop these firemen from setting fires. They're not setting fires, they're fighting fires. But the correlation can be easily mistaken. So no, I couldn't call upon an adult to jump in to help because it would lead to all manner of negative consequences far worse than if we did nothing. 
And I think that many of the conversations I had were not conversations that, if they'd gone wrong, would have led to actual suicide attempts. I think many of them were simply cries for help. They needed attention. They needed support. And I was happy to give it. But there was at least a few that were more serious. But that was just my life. I encountered people in trouble, and I helped them because that was my instinct. And it wasn't purely an altruistic instinct. There was a bit of a white knight instinct. I like to feel important. I like to feel special. I'm a teenage boy. Teenage boys don't often feel that great about themselves. So if I had a chance to be the guy who could solve the problem, the important serious problem, then I was going to do that. And I was happy to do that. And frankly, I'm surprised that more don't do that. But I don't know if they're overwhelmed or they listen to the warnings of adults that they are not good enough and not ready. And maybe they aren't. Probably most people shouldn't do what I did. But I did. And I learned a lot from it. And it was very powerful and very instructive. And I learned a lot about people. And I learned a lot about my own intuition and my own empathy and my own ability to read people. I learned a lot about parenting. I learned a lot that I use today. A lot that I use as a parent. Because my greatest, I wouldn't say fear, because I don't have any fear it's going to happen. But the one of the greatest things I want to avoid is being the kind of parent that these girls had such that they needed me to help them the worst one of the worst outcomes would be if my daughter ends up having to talk to some friend like these girls had to talk to me because her father doesn't understand her and isn't supporting her and is the source of her problems now i may fail to guide her completely effectively i may fail to give her what she needs i may fail to get her completely in the right direction but at the very least I don't want to be the cause of the problem. If you can't make it better, at least don't make it worse. So I've been thinking about this lately. It popped into my head, and I'm realizing that I've gotten away from one-on-one -on -one coaching. And some of this is because in 2020, when I started getting into coaching, you see, the way I got into it was I met this coach, and he taught me a particular strategy that was designed for selling coaching services. He was teaching it to me for selling magazine ads. It wasn't designed for that, and it didn't work for that. But I learned it, and it wasn't working, and he said, why not be a coach? And I was like, I don't have any training as a coach. And I realized, but I've, I used to do that. I used to support people. That's kind of coaching. So I could probably do that. Let me deploy that. And so I did it, and I used this sales strategy, and I signed up 10 clients in 10 weeks. Pretty good. And 8 out of 10 of them dropped after a month because I couldn't serve them because I wasn't trained as a coach. And so I got into my head that actually I'm not really good at this coaching thing. And the other thing he planted in my head was the idea that one-on-one -on -one coaching is trading time for money, which it is. And it's not scalable, so it'll hold you back. So your calendar will fill up and you don't want to get stuck there because you won't be able to leverage your business, which is all technically true but a more advanced concept than I was ready for at the time. Because, yes, you can't scale one-on-one -on -one coaching. It does hit a limit. But coaching isn't cheap because it is powerful. And because of that, you don't actually need to do a whole lot of it to pay your bills unless you're trying to buy a yacht, which I'm not. I'm not looking to buy a yacht. But so I got in my head that, one, I didn't want to do coaching because it was too time-consuming. And two, I didn't want to do coaching because... I wasn't very good at it. 
so I got away from it. But I did coach a few people over the years, and those people got phenomenal results. Multiple people I've coached have gotten them out of their jobs and helped them to start businesses. People I've coached who were in business that I was able to do tremendous things for, um, opening them up to the world of networking and building their network and building their confidence and overcoming their own blocks and a lot of things I did. I got some really good results for the people I did coach, but then I didn't coach that many. And I believe the universe is calling me to get back to it. Because it keeps giving me memories from my high school years when I was a pretty effective, intuitive coach. So I'm getting back into that. I'm opening up some coaching spots. Um, I'm going to start with four clients and see how that goes. And, you know, if that works well, then I may open up to a few more. But, you know, very limiting, limited. But I believe I can do some good for some people. I believe I meant to because I really enjoy doing it when I know what I'm doing and... After a few thousand dollars of courses and many months and many hours of training, on top of my intuitive talents, I think I've got that and should be using it. But I spoke earlier this week on Morning Motivation about this idea of our automation. I believe it was yesterday's Morning Motivation, if you're listening to these in order, in which I talk about how most of what we do is run by heuristics and rules. And one of the rules I got in my head was, you don't want to do coaching because it takes so much time. So I'm like, okay, sounds good. And you can't deliver results with coaching. Okay, sounds good. And so I just follow those up thinking about it because it makes things easier. But then I stop and actually look at it and say, wait a minute. What about that client? And what about that client? And what about that client? And let's do the math. And based on my rates, which are mid-range for the coaching world, if I get a decent number of clients that takes up a modest amount of my time, I could get a decent income while creating powerful impact. Huh. But we so often just roll with our heuristics and follow the rules that our minds follow because our brains are overtaxed constantly and they don't want to spend more energy rehashing things we've already figured out, do they? So, I don't know what my lesson or conclusion is in this. This is my most stream of consciousness. That's why I call it a Sunday reflection, just kind of thinking about some stuff. But I just wanted to share that story. Maybe you can learn something from it. Actually, I'd love to hear from you. Email michael at guywhoknowsaguy.com. What did you get from this? What can you learn from my story and from my experience? What can I learn from my story and my experience? Getting that reflected back is always powerful. So, I guess a couple things. Pay attention to your programming and your heuristics. If you can't, hire a coach because they do it for you really effectively. And what are the gifts that you have from way back that maybe you forgot to look at? Because... Sometimes those can be exactly what you're looking for. See you tomorrow. I have published a new book called The View from the Deck, Thoughts on Values, Vision, and Gratitude. If you like Morning Motivation, you're going to love this book. It's a lot of the same concepts. The basic principle of the book is that I was coaching clients, and they were telling me about their dream life, and I was recognizing elements of their dream life in my everyday life. And it made me realize there's things in my life that people are dreaming of. And there's things in my life that the me of a few years ago would absolutely have given his right arm for. And chances are you've got the same. So I took these concepts about values and what makes us do what we do, vision, where we want to be, and gratitude, appreciating the awesome things we have, and put them together into one awesome book called The View from the Deck, Values, Vision, and 
and gratitude. You can find it on Amazon.com. Just search for Michael Whitehouse, The View from the Deck, and get your copy today.